Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, or as the French say, Grand Rapids. I've been up since 3 a.m. Give me a break here. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville, 1680 a.m. and 95.3 FM, and streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio, my fellow doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Oh, 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 hello. I have also lost sleep, okay? <laughs> Teen pop sensation, Justin Schieber. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. Professor Luke Galen. I'm not even going to compete with the accent uh, department with you guys. That's good. That's good, because you couldn't. You couldn't keep up. I don't up, have the man. theater background that you do. Uh, coming up on today's show, a Lady Gaga-inspired skeptic Sunday school, some <laughs> God thinks like you, polyatheism, and a stranger than fiction to wrap it up. But to start off with, a news story that uh, has been making headlines for a couple of weeks now. We haven't had a chance to talk about it yet on the show. Involving it's the new in our parallel universe here recording. Right. <laughs> it's probably going to be a month old by the time people hear this. But uh, Well, yeah. <laughs> Catholic nuns stunned by Vatican slap was the major headline that came out of Reuters back in April. Quoting the Reuters story real quick, a prominent U.S. Catholic nuns group said said that it was stunned that the Vatican reprimanded it for spending too much time on poverty and social justice concerns and not enough on abortion and gay marriage issues. Because that's uh, the priority of the Catholic Church. Uh, yes, the, uh, the Conference of Women Religious had been too silent, the Vatican said, on the right to life issues. Mm-hmm. Another quote from the Vatican leadership, they had failed to make, quote, the biblical view of family life and human sexuality a central plank in their agenda. Mm -hmm. Meaning they hadn't been talking enough about the Vatican's pet projects at this point. Mm -hmm. They, they They were focusing too much on helping people and not enough on denying people rights. And I, I would put the the American nuns on our props list for this. I would say they're doing the right thing by focusing on issues that are more important, such as poverty, as opposed to focusing on denying rights of people. So props to them. And, of course, once again, the Vatican shows its cards a little bit too much. Like, what really matters to the Catholic Church right, right, right now? Experts are saying that we shouldn't be too stunned by this. I mean, ever since Ratzinger has uh, become the Pope, there's been a major shift in cracking down uh, theologically, getting mm-hmm. the Church all in line. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that we kind of failed to mention, I think, earlier is that this is aimed at the United States. Yeah, the American nuns. Yeah, so the, the Leadership Conference of Women Religious represents 80% of America's 57,000 
Catholic nuns. I was mm-hmm. kind of shocked to see there was that many. There is, a, yeah, this is a large chunk of the uh, female leadership. There's been further investigation as to who was in the Vatican kind of agitating mm-hmm. against this. Uh, who was who was initiating these investigations mm-hmm. of the American nuns and uh, who was pushing the Vatican to actually discipline mm-hmm. the LCWR and uh, found out some names. This story coming to us from David Gibson from the Religious News or the Religion News Service. The title of the article is Are Americans in Rome Behind the Nuns Crackdown? In this article, we learn one of our favorites. Yes, spearheading spearheading this is none other than than the Boston Cardinal Bernard Law, who's who's really all about slapping down people in the Catholic Church who are doing the wrong thing, right? I mean, this is the guy who actively um, helped prosecute um, child sex abuse priests, right? Uh, yeah, you would like to think and, that, right? Yeah. Uh, but no, actually, he was the guy who had to flee from the Boston Archdiocese to Rome precisely because he had done nothing to stop these abuse cases. He had, of course, taken part in shuffling around these yeah. priests and mm. covering up investigations. And this is the guy and, setting the priorities yeah. for the Vatican it, it, to yeah. some degree. In the Catholic Church, when you are shamed like this, uh, one of the things they do is... Uh, Give they, you a job in Rome? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, they even, they, even have a, they even have a cute little phrase for it. They call it being kicked upstairs. Oh, yes, yes. When you're too much of a nuisance for your local congregations and no one will tolerate you, you get kicked upstairs That's a, into some sort of administrative position right. in the Vatican. That's an interesting euphemism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's I, kind of like what happens to a lot of social studies teachers in American public schools. <laughs> They're such crappy teachers that we decide to put them in charge of our uh, our administration That's roles right. in schools. Oh, well, someone's bitter. Uh, just a little. Yeah. <laughs> but but to, but to say that he's been a nuisance is certainly underplaying it because this is a guy who um, very well should be in jail for what he did to help facilitate the continuation of child abuse. He is now the guy. The, yeah. Just the they irony call, of this is amazing. Yeah. He's call. saying your priorities are wrong here, nuns. Let's focus on the important stuff, like keeping children from um, homes where the parents happen to be gay and forcing all children to be born, even to parents who don't want them and can't support them. Uh, Quoting again a Vatican investigator, laws the, quote, person in Rome most forcefully supporting this investigation. He's the prime instigator. He, of course, has help from other American cardinals and bishops. Um, but here, here's a quote from the associate editor of Commonweal, a uh, liberal Catholic magazine. Grant Galicho says, quote, American Catholics have not forgotten how long it took bishops to wake up to the sexual abuse crisis they created. And now they see the Vatican took just three years to determine that it had no other option but to put 80% of United States nuns, whose average age is 74, into receivership, an effort led in part by Cardinal Bernard Law. That decision has unified a good deal of Catholics, all right, against Rome. Yeah. um, Hmm. It's 
I mean, that's the most impressive thing about this, I think, is the backlash we've seen from American Catholics against this statement from Rome. It seems like Benedict's Vatican is just hell-bent on imploding. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> it, it just This has been the most the, the worst PR. No. Since day one for I, Benedict. I, I, I mean, it's, can't believe it. Well, they recognize it, though, that the growth is... The growth we're likely to get from secular nations or Western Europe is is not going to be high, and they're yeah. kind of going to f- turn more and more towards the third world. They're they're basically they're competing with evangelical churches in South America and Africa. Yeah. It, oh. It's a lot like the Republican <laughs> Party. They're going, you know, we're not going to get. We're, the we're not winning here. So let's, yeah, exactly. Let's to... We're not getting the 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 regular people, the sane people. So let's just go more extreme, and we can pick up more of the crazies. And as and as we know from you know just views on contraception, the the yeah. vast oh. majority of American Catholics are 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 opposed to the to the doctrines anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's the other thing to to bring up here is when the Vatican talks about you know right to life issues, they're not talking about abortion or just abortion. They're also talking about contraceptives. They're talking right, about birth right, control. Right. Um, these are highly unpopular positions with a large portion of Catholics in America, which is what we're dealing with specifically mm-hmm. here, as is gay marriage. More and more Catholics and more and more everyone, um, especially with the younger generations in this country, are saying, "Who? Why? why does gay marriage pose a threat? Why is that a problem for us? Right. This is, you know, good marriages are good things. So, um, yeah, the Catholic Church is definitely... Um, going to lose a lot of support, um, at least the hearts and minds of American Catholics are, right. are falling away from Rome. And we have some data which, for which that. Yeah. The Census of American Religious Congregations, it's showing that Catholics are maybe one of the largest denominations in the nation, but they have continued to decline. Uh, they've declined about 5% nationwide since the last census. Hard to imagine why that would be the case. Hmm. Yes, uh, and guess who's growing? Uh, I'm a Mormons! <laughs> yes, Mormons. Well, apparently, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, uh, the two denominations that apparently have experienced a lot of growth, which I guess, I guess it's a bit of a misnomer, uh, would be the the non-denominational hmm. movements. Right, right. If we take them collectively, independent non-denominational churches apparently make up the third largest religious group in America. Wow. And the other interesting finding was that the Mormon church seems to be the fastest growing group in the United States. Hmm. Their numbers appear to be going through the roof. Which is easy because all they have to do is baptize dead people. Well, yeah. Some people decided Do they count to dead take people in the. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out uh, this guy died a long time ago, and he's also counted among our ranks. That's, that's, see, see, look at how many there are. It's terribly yeah. convenient. Peggy Fletcher Stack of the Salt Lake Tribune looked at the numbers and saw that something was a little bit fishy. Usually when they do statistics of this kind, they ask the church for their own official numbers. Mm-hmm. And then what they also do is, is their own kind of their own form of polling where they're just asking people what congregation would they 
associate with and everything else. Mm -hmm. And usually what they find is that the church's internal numbers are far lower than people self-report what they're affiliated with. So people want to look like they are going yeah. to church. Um, Somebody might be nominally Catholic or Lutheran yeah. or something else, right, but right. they're they're not really going enough to register on those on yeah. on the congregation's numbers. So this trend apparently holds across the board until you get to the Mormon church. And then you see the trend flip. <laughs> so when you look at the numbers of the Mormon it's, church, it's much technically there are higher. far fewer people who are uh, self-reporting to be Mormons right. than what the church is uh, <laughs> is saying exists on their roles. It, they can make it look like the growth is more because in the previous years they used a more narrow figure. And then in the recent right. years they used a more expansive, inclusive figure, mm. which makes it look artificially like the numbers themselves are skyrocketing. Right. So true. it looks like it all just jumped up, but uh, but in, it, it hadn't. Um, uh, yeah, so apparently it's very easy to get on the LDS role books, but it's very hard to get off. Right, <laughs> Actually, right. we even had a guest. I, I think uh, say, Joshua Allen was, was on our show yeah. uh, talking about how difficult it is uh, to get your your letter saying you, you've officially you've officially you been taken no off the Mormon. roll books of the Mormon Church. Well, one thing they do enjoy have the third of, layer of heaven. <laughs> they do have uh, their one way in which they they are have an advantage though is their birth rate. They yeah, get, they get yeah, very absolutely. younger. They they have more kids. Which you think Catholics would have an advantage in too, because traditionally Catholics have had pretty good numbers. That's, Every sperm is sacred, and so forth. That's right. well, they do though. have an advantage probably in that area, of and course. they're still yeah. still losing ground. They have a relative yeah. advantage over like mainstream Protestants, but it's still yeah. if you if you you also have to separate white Catholics from Hispanic Catholics mm-hmm. or you know Latino Catholics. In fact, when you look at the numbers, I have a survey here. Uh, that looked at this one looks more at the millennials, the young, you know, like nineteen through or eighteen through through thirty, by the uh, Public Religion Research Institute. Uh, if you look at the categories that are gaining and losing, in other words, comparing the childhood religion with uh, that they grew up in yeah. and their okay. adult religion now, and then you subtract them and look at the net gain or loss. Overall, Catholics are losing, it looks like, eight percentage points. But when you subdivide it, the white Catholics are losing, let's see, the, are, are losing at a much greater rate than the Latino Catholics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, basically, in a nutshell, the thing that's making the Catholic numbers look as stable as they are, relatively, is that um, whatever losses they're having, let's say, in the Northeast or like with, with Anglo-Catholics, like mm-hmm. the traditional like Boston strongholds and things mm-hmm. like that, those numbers are crashing. Mm-hmm. What's gaining is immigration, basically, in the Southwest right, right. Uh, and, and Southeast, they're getting, there's more Latino Catholics. And so, uh, yes, they have a relatively higher birth rate, but what's really helping propping the numbers up is immigration. Hmm. And the group that has the most gains is the unaffiliated. That yeah. is the the group that has, uh, and this includes, you know, not only atheists and agnostics, but just people who are perhaps religious and secular people who don't. I'm spiritual, right? But yeah. uh, but it does include the people that are, you know, non-believers as well, and that is the game, especially particularly among young people. Like when you split this up and slice it by age. You know, that that proportion is fairly small for old people, mm-hmm. but the younger you get in the demographics, the more that there is, the the higher the proportion of unaffiliated and the greater their uh, their gains are. That's, that's 
all of that information has got to give you a little bit of faith and hope in humanity, doesn't it? Well, it certainly looks positive for the unaffiliates and not as positive for the churches. But mm-hmm. the the thing, though, is that the, the the groups also that tend to be – it's not only Catholics that are losing, but also mainstream Protestants. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of people – what worries a lot of people who are, happen to be of a pessimistic bent is that – the American landscape appears to be scalloping out in the middle, yeah. and that the ones that are gaining are the either the very religious megachurch type people that we always rail mm-hmm. against, and the, the people snake that, handlers. Yeah, and how the are the people, snake handlers doing? <laughs> well, they tend to get bit, the actual snake handlers. <laughs> have yeah. a high yeah. loss rate yeah. there. they have a control on their population <laughs> That's growth. <true>. Yes. <laughs> we have a Ingesting fastest poison. Uh, we used to be the fastest growing. <laughs> Is there anybody out there? <laughs> <laughs> but We're yes, gonna have the, uh, to recruit a few more. But the mainstream Protestants are losing a lot too. Yeah, uh, you know the traditional mainline Episcopal, Lutheran, Methodist. Those churches are losing. So what, what what's a little bit worrisome about some of these trends are it looks as if we're polarizing, and that there are a lot young people who are non-religious more often, but there's also people who are highly religious, and that might lead to a lot of you know yeah. more contentious battles. Yeah. Yeah. In uh, other, I suppose, positive news, um, follow up on the uh, Amish breakaway sect that has been attacking Amish people, right? Um, This group that has been attacking and shaving the beards off Amish people, which is, you know, that's a pretty major offense. Yeah. um, Do you you know what the drive-by sound like? Oh, God. Come on. (laughs) Sip, sip, sip. Ow! I cursed thee. Oh, uh, <laughs> just a giant musket. <laughs> the the leader of this uh, of this breakoff sect, um, Sam Mullet, insert joke about haircuts here, has has been arrested and uh, for some time now he's um, facing charges in Cleveland, uh, federal hate crimes charges, and he has been denied a uh, bid for parole. Mm. Yep, yep. He's been asking. Uh, he's been asking to get out on parole. He's actually, it, since we last talked about him, uh, Sam Mullet has become an instant millionaire. Uh, How? Yeah, uh, he has leased part of his 800-acre farm to a gas and oil company. So he went from being so poor that he couldn't afford his own counsel, and right. they, the court had to appoint one. To now he's. He's worth about $2 million. He sold his land to an oil company, yeah. and now he's, yeah, okay, well, that's one way to make um, money. Which is funny. He's deciding to still go with the public defender that they've given him. So they have to... may not be the best uh, choice. But, but the judge decided to double double the uh, the rate, pay twice the rate. Yeah. Uh, so it's $250 an hour oh, now well. that the public defender is getting. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know why I mentioned that other than I just found that funny. Nah, I think Funny I agree. Uh, but yeah, Mullet now has more than enough to pay for his own defense and more than enough to pay even a very high bail. Yeah. Right. But luckily, the judge is not going for it. The judge is of the opinion that, quote, that there is a possibility of a violent encounter. Uh, evidence has demonstrated that this defendant and his followers have not embraced the traditional. Amish principles of nonviolence and forgiveness. Uh, there's a possibility of a violent encounter at this time with law enforcement, and that that should not be readily dismissed. But as people were 
saying even earlier when we originally talked about this story that uh, some are also afraid of a violent encounter with his congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, some have compared this Sam Mullet individual to a Jim Jones to mm-hmm. a, and his yeah. particular cult to a, another potential Jonestown uh, massacre scenario. So nobody wants this guy going back on the farm. Yeah. For really? fear of what might result. So the the most remarkable connection between Sam Mullet and Jim Jones is that uh, before becoming cult leaders, they were both door to door monkey salesmen. Actually, only true about that, Jim that Jones. I know, but that it is, is true, true about Jim Jones. Jim Jones. Seriously? The, yes, he was a door to door monkey salesman. Yep. And they have interviews with these nice old ladies. Yeah. Oh, he came to my house and sold me a monkey. <laughs> oh my God, it's fantastic. But yeah, I mean the 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 judge, and I believe it's a, a panel um, from the circuit of the uh, circuit court of appeals in uh, in Ohio has said, no, this guy is a threat. He cannot be um, released on bail. So they're they're uh, making a smart decision and keeping the mullet. Safely locked up behind bars, <laughs> keeping the mullet. The mullet. So um, let's move on, shall we, to some God thinks like you. Yeah, there's been a lot of press lately on uh, the advantages of religion coming from some sources that you wouldn't uh, think would talk about the advantages of religion. So one of them, for example, our listeners might be familiar with is Alain de Botton's book on how atheism should, you know, adopt the memes of religion to compete better with them. Atheism 2.0, I think he's calling it. Yeah, so like... This TED Talk he did. He did, yeah, yeah, a lot of press in our our, uh, neck of the woods is on his TED Talk where they say that, you know, not all things about religion are bad and we should, could learn a thing or two. So he talks about, for example, the the groupiness where you have services where people sing and, and you know get all kumbaya with, with we need things. more we need more we songs because quite frankly imagine gets old after uh, singing it three times that's in true. Uh, one service yeah uh, things like that and then uh, the other thing that's going to get a lot of press is E O Wilson who is you know basically mm-hmm. as close to a biological god as almost like Dawkins there for for evolutionists uh, his book argues his upcoming book is supposed to argue about the the group selection benefits of mm-hmm. religion as an adaptation that mm-hmm. is that by promoting social cohesion uh, those traits would have been beneficial to our ancestors, and, sure. that, and that religion right. is related to that. I guess the, my reaction to some of that, well, this is an ongoing thing. I think in some future episodes we're going to talk uh, uh, about the, the some of the new theories about the evolutionary psychology of um, the, the latest work on religion, whether it's adaptive or not. But one thing I wanted to talk to the listeners about, though, is the, um, what I call my, my tenfold path of things to keep in mind when you when you look at research supposedly talking about the benefits of religion as being a pro-social force. Uh-huh. And this is actually, I have a, a, a review paper that's going to come up in the next few months that, that categorizes these. So I thought I would just quickly run down things to keep in mind. So when you see things like, for example, if you see us, you know, study shows that church attendance helps your health or that, uh, that you know, people right. that are happier. Religion when they're more makes religious. people more happy, healthy, and horny. All that stuff. <laughs> 
I haven't heard that last one. Makes you yeah. jump, jump higher, run faster. Yeah, so things. there's several things to keep in mind, I think, that I've tried to distill into questions you want to ask if you, our listeners are fairly sophisticated, I, uh, and that when you guys look down these articles, I want you guys to look at, you know, how the studies are done or, or what the various influences that you need to take into account before you conclude that, in fact, it's the religion as, uh, and not other factors. So let me just go down my top ten list. One of these is that uh, the stereotypes uh, that religion should be beneficial. That is, a lot of these studies rely on you know, asking people uh, how happy they think they should be or you know, self-report measures of these things. You know, these are these are all subject to the general stereotype that I've talked about, you know, for the past couple of years in that people assume that there should be a connection between pro-social, happy, good things and religion. So if it's self-report data, there's no way to tell whether or not you're tracking reality right. or just tracking their, their prejudice. They feel right. as though, as though right. it's a duty for them to say that their religion is having a good effect on them. Yeah, or if you're rating somebody else, if you know that they're religious, this has been the basis for some of my studies, if you know that somebody's religious, that's going to affect your ratings of their morality, their personality, you think that the person's nicer, uh, and then the reverse of all that, of course, for the atheist. So that's the first one, is uh, take into account whether the the study uh, ruled out the effects of just stereotypes. That's relevant also to... um, different countries. You get different results when you have non-religious countries that don't have the stereotypes that we have here. Uh, the second one is that is just plain old group favoritism, that often the people doing the ratings are fellow religious people because in our country they're the majority, and so there's just dumb old, apart from the stereotype effect, there's just dumb old, that person's in my group, and so I'm going to rate them as being more likable. Mm-hmm. And the infamous Jesus Fish study that I did where Jeremy was one of the uh, stimuli in the study that I filmed Quite frankly, if I anyone, stimulating if, if anyone was going to find him likable, clearly there is some bias at play because that uh, that doesn't just happen. The 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 versions uh, where Jeremy was deep, Dave. Uh, the, the versions where Jeremy was religious as opposed to non-religious had substantial differences. The the participants in the study when they saw him in a Jesus fish shirt versus a Darwin fish shirt said that he was you know nicer, more moral, and and a lot of them actually in their written comments said when he was not religious, said, it's puzzling that he said that he did beneficial work, this this character did, you know, volunteer work, because he's not religious, and I want to ask him how he can be good if he's not religious. Hmm. So there's a clear effect hmm. of just simple groupiness, and that's stronger in religious people than non-religious people, uh, that you need to rule out in the studies. Um, the other one, number three, is that uh, a lot of the studies involve things that uh, are priming studies where they activate religious concepts, mm-hmm. you know, often by flashing words on the screen or having people Yeah, think we've about talked about religion. a number of those on the show. Yeah, and in fact, those studies show, and, and I'm not contesting this, that when you prime people with religious concepts right before you have them do a task, they are often more generous or pro-social or trusting hmm. and things like that. But the, those studies often find that there's a handful out there that actually use a control condition where you use secular primes as well. So mm-hmm. things that are pro-social but not God-related like you know, court, civic, justice, if you have words like that and compare them to words like God and Jesus and Bible, you get the same effect. Mm-hmm. That is, it's not uni- religion doesn't uniquely prime pro-social mm-hmm. behavior. Right. You get the effect from secular things as well. So that's the that's number three. Number four uh, is that 
yes, religious concepts prime pro-social behavior, but they also prime non-pro-social behavior. And there's studies out there that show what new flash religious words or have people think about religious concepts. It makes people more, and there's a lot of effects, but more uh, authoritarian, more even even racist. There's some studies showing that when you prime religious things, people get more unconsciously racist, probably because it activates, again, this group boundariness. Mm-hmm. People yeah. associate religion with in-groupiness, and that's not always a good thing. So and, and the kind of like persecution, right? Yeah, and so uh, that they become more compliant, for example, to the experimenter. You don't always want that. That's not always a beneficial effect. Right. Uh, the other thing that that is that the the studies often focus on number five is that they focus on self reports instead of actual behavior. So one thing that you see in a lot of research is that there's often a gap that's wider for religious people that they tend to self report. I'm I would do this. You know, they ask questions like, "Would you give money to a charity?" Or, you know, would you well, help sure an old lady across would. the street? Oh, that, sure I would, because I'm a nice person. Those are also subject to things like stereotype effects, such that religious people tend to be more, I guess, optimistic or... About or, themselves. About themselves, yeah. because mm-hmm. they, again, they figure, I, mu- I probably would do this because I'm religious. Whereas non-religious people tend to, to downplay uh, or have a more realistic... Uh, assessment of what they would do. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess I consider studies that are the best studies ones that look at actual behavior, mm-hmm. because, uh, especially when you know you're not right. being watched. That's the gold standard, not, right. well, not your predictions. Your about what you it's just harder to do those studies. It's much easier to have the self-report studies. And it's not as good of a headline to put up there. Uh, religion makes you think that you're really cool. <laughs> think that you're really moral. Not, not going to get published. So that's number five of the behavior studies. <laughs> number six is that uh, the study depends on the context. There's more and more studies that have come out that, that give different results. I mentioned this a second ago. In Europe, for example, than the United States, or if you do the study in Germany or Sweden versus the United States, you get results that actually are fascinating because they show that uh, in non-religious normative countries, you get so, sort of like the bizarro world of flip results of studies that you get here. Hmm. I think I've mentioned some of this before, but like, uh, but like when you have a study in the United States and that shows that people in the United States that are more religious tend to be more happy or more satisfied with life. Well, when you do the study in Sweden, you find the reverse. The people who are right. not, less religious tend to be more happy. Right. And so it has to do hmm. more with whether you are part of the communal value system. So, uh, you know, when people are looking at studies, always look and see where the data was collected. It's just a simple, like, uh, it's often a contextual effect, not a effect of religion itself. Mm-hmm. Mm. We've gotten some <clears throat> some really good emails lately from international listeners. I think we just got one from a, a listener in Germany, too, who talked about You often so. hear people say, that's not the way it is here. Yeah. You know, or, or like or like there's one from, I think we get one from, like, Denmark or something like yeah. that, where they're like, we think the people who are very religious, there's something odd about the kids in mm-hmm. school that are like that. You know, they, hmm. they view them somewhat suspiciously, which is certainly the opposite of here. Hmm. Uh, but, and that's related to actually to the number seven, and that is uh, often it's the group affiliation factors, not the religious belief content. Right. So right. we've talked again ab- about this earlier, but just to summarize in a nutshell, mm-hmm. often the be- there are benefits when you look at a study of like church attendance. You know, people who go to church are happier. Uh, often the f- catchphrase for this is the religiously engaged people are happier than the disengaged people. Well, that's not necessarily effective beliefs. 
that's an effect of being uh, in a group context of supportive people who believe the same thing or that are confident about what they believe. They Having people week. you can hang out with and have coffee of, with. Of like and, mind. Yeah. Right? yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of my work has been, has been to show that when you have a secular group like groups that are local like the Center for Inquiry groups or, you know, American atheists or meetup groups, that they show the same social benefits as, as church and therefore, so it's not really the religious belief that's beneficial. Some of these studies don't control for or separate out uh, of this just dumb old group attendance. Hmm. Uh, and then eight is that, this is another thing I've harped on a lot, is that the studies often compare highly religious people with just merely low religious people or unaffiliated people. So right. again, the problem is is that low religious is not non-religious. Indifferent mm. people who just don't care or they aren't involved, that's not the same as a committed atheist. So a lot of the effects, and this leads to number nine, a lot of the effects are actually curved effects that you find that, yes, maybe religious, highly religious people or confidently religious people are better in some way, but uh, you look at the people who are the at the opposite extreme, like committed secular people, those right, militant right. atheists. Yes. It's a, it's a maybe it's a confidence effect of a worldview that you have a coherent worldview, right. and that the people that you have to worry about are the wishy-washy ones in the middle. Yeah. So often these things show the studies though don't they just lump everybody together at the low end, uh, and then finally number ten that the <laughs> studies that are done often uh, are committing what what's called in nerdy stat circles a criterion contamination of the outcome with the predictor. So, for example, this happens a lot with, you'll read about spirituality research. Mm -hmm. We'll have a measure of spirituality and it'll predict happiness. Well, and and often the headline goes, you know, like religious spiritual people are happier or that they, you know, like puppies more or something good. But when you break (laughs) it down, these spirituality measures often contain items that are the similar or the same as the items of what you're trying to predict with them. So, mm, like right, uh, right. measures, uh, spirituality measures often contain items that even a, a happy atheist would score highly on. This is one of the complaints, actually. I think we've talked to the show about like the military's um, mm-hmm. fit, uh, their well-being measures that contain like spiritual fitness things, and they ask yeah. like, you know, do you sometimes, you know, do you feel connected with other people? Do you see purpose and meaning in life? And they call that spirituality. Right. Well, when you cross-reference that with other outcomes, like, are you depressed or are you, you know, are you anxious? Are you do you feel, you know, of course there's going to be a correlation between items that say. You know, do you feel connected with the universe and do you feel a purpose in life? And that, But it's cheating to say that that's because of some religious or spiritual right, thing. Right, and that's right. what I mean by they're contaminating a predictor and an and a, and a outcome variable there. Um, so a lot of times what happens in studies like this are you have to be careful and see and look at what were the measures they used to predict these positive outcomes and did they actually cheat by containing elements of that and so you have to re- sort of remove that. And like we mentioned before, a lot of the measures that uh, are of spirituality are just measures of just overall happiness. They have nothing to do with right. metaphysical spirituality. What, what I'm learning here is that skepticism <clears throat> takes a lot of hard work. It's so much easier to just go, oh, the study says religious people like puppies more than non-religious people. Okay. So much easier. You're making. I mean, this is ten rules. I'm sorry. Can you imagine if religion was based around a set of ten rules that you had to abide by in order to 
to live up to the standards? I'll just, <laughs> we, should, <laughs> we just keep it more <laughs> simple here and just say, you know, yes, they're happier. Don't, don't question things. Yeah. Atheist or cranky. All right. That gets a lot better headlines. Now, Justin. Yo. As we head into Skeptic Sunday School, I have to say, I'm just a holy fool. Oh, baby, it's so cruel. But I'm still in love with Judas, baby. Baby. That's right. To to be fair, I had to look up the lyrics. I've never heard this song before. <laughs> I, didn't know it was a I still don't know. What I, thought you had your, I thought you had your finger on the pulse of pop culture uh, because you have you have young adolescent I, girls at home who listen to that sort of thing. I know emo music and I know um, <laughs> Disney. It's kind of nothing in between. Yeah. Speaking speaking of Judas, I actually was uh, um, just trolling around on the internet this morning. And found out that uh, I don't know the details, but apparently uh, Tim Minchin is going to be playing Judas mm-hmm. uh, in a production of Jesus Christ Superstar. <sighs> That's going to be That's so, so cool. awesome! Awesome! <laughs> like, couldn't be a better. <laughs> you, you can't find a better role for that. Brilliant casting know. there. See, yeah. I could see him as the Herod role because Herod's kind of goofy. I thought it always of Judas as being in that thing as being more conflicted and he sort is. of dark. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know. I, I think never... I think it would be yeah. fun to see uh, Tim Minchin play that. Yeah, yeah. You know, he hasn't. Let I don't him, think of him, him stretch his legs a little bit. In uh, I I don't know if he's ever acted before, so it'll really be something. He actually starts off as the conscience of the play. He's he's the one yeah. going like, do you really think all this talk about being God is? Jesus Christ Real? Superstar is kind of the gospel of Judas. I mean, as far as that, you know, painting Judas in a much more sympathetic, mm, yeah. conflicted light. Mm-hmm. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. So uh, in case you haven't guessed yet, the uh, Skeptic Sunday School is about Judas. I wanted to focus on those narratives that we get in Matthew and Acts hmm. that, that describe like the last events, the last days of Judas, because there's some pretty potent contradictions, I think, here. The questions we would want to ask, you know, are do the narratives agree? And if not, are these differences significant? Are they significant enough to undermine the historical reliability, or if if we would even think that that would apply? And uh, are these differences random, or do they fit a pattern? Are are these kind of depictions of Judas in fundamentally different ways? That that's one of the important things we've seen in skeptic Sunday schools over the past couple of years is that it's it's one thing to call out a contradiction mm-hmm. between right. two passages, but sometimes what can escape us is that there's an underlying pattern that explains those contradictions. Mm-hmm. Those contradictions can contain information. When you see that, I always find that a much more compelling case yeah. uh, against the biblical claims. If, if yeah, I mean, if all these, if all the parts that are not perfectly in agreeing, they they disagree in similar ways. <laughs> yeah, then there's there's something ways. to be said about that. Like when you look at the the different gospels, and we've talked about mm-hmm. this in our uh, series on cross examining the four witnesses, and <laughs> right. you see the contradictions that create different narratives as yep. opposed to just being simple and in the, differences. The which Jesus episode. The the two accounts, as I said, are, are in Matthew and Acts. Uh, in Matthew, it's chapter twenty seven, verses three through ten. We have Judas coming to realize that he betrayed Jesus, and he actually is repentant mm. of this. And so he goes to the, uh, the chief priests and elders, and he 
he uh you know tries to give the money back right the 30 pieces of silver but they're they're not going to take it right so he drops it on the floor and he leaves and goes to hang himself yes now the priests and elders take this money they're like well uh, we can't put this in our coffers. Saved ourselves some money. So what do we do with it? They go and buy uh, a field for to bury foreigners in. That seems like the next logical thing to do when you've got an extra couple of pieces of silver. <laughs> right. It's, well, yeah, you can't put blood money back in the treasury, so might as well buy some dirty land to right. bury some Isn't dirty foreigners Isn't that where it all in. came from in the first place? Isn't it all <laughs> and blood so, money? And so it's, it's, in, in Matthew, it's said that the reason that this field, which is, was originally called Potter's Field, the reason it becomes known as uh, the field of blood is because it was purchased with, with the blood, blood money, yeah, okay. purchased right. by the priests, um, and so that's the account of, of Matthew. And as I, as I said, he, he drops the money, leaves and goes hang himself mm-hmm. after being repentant. Right. Um, and it's actually – we should be clear too. He's not trying to commit suicide. It's autoerotic asphyxiation that goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> wrong. That, that's in Matthew, it, right? It was, it Is was, that not in Matthew? No, no. I think this was extreme acrobatic autoerotic asphyxiation. <laughs> oh, uh, yes, uh, of course. E-A-A-R-E – oh, God, I can never get those too many vowels. <laughs> Anyways um, – and so, so that's the account in Matthew. Uh, but when we turn to Acts, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, uh, it's, uh, Judas is mentioned, and, he, and it says that uh, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. So it's saying that Judas bought the purchased field. the yeah. field re- with the reward of his wickedness. So it's kind of portraying Jesus as, you know, he betrays Jesus, gets money, and then goes and spends it mm-hmm. on personal gain. It says, right? Judas bought a field, there he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Exactly. Everyone in Jewish Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language, Akeldama, Akeldama that is, yeah. field of blood. Let me get this straight. He's running along and he falls and trips and splits his guts open. Falls headlong. But he yeah. falls headlong. Yeah. Okay. After purchasing the f- or after purchasing the field and then because he explodes, yes. he, uh, that's the reason why <laughs> the re- it's field of blood. <laughs> right. Yeah. So even we have even different modes of death here. Exactly. Yeah. And one so, he hangs himself in one which is an intentional act mm-hmm. and the other one he's falling and <laughs> right, right. open. So you have you have three main uh areas of of contention here in mm-hmm. these in these narratives. You have first how Jesus died. Judas. Judas. <laughs> or Judas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then, of course, who purchased the field? Mm-hmm. And then the third is uh, the reason that the field comes to be known as the field of blood. Right. So, so first, the method of, of how he dies. Uh, it's actually this tension among a few others that uh, that led C.S. Lewis to write a letter where he says, "Quote: Whatever view we hold of the divinity of the the divine authority of Scripture, we must make room for." These and he lists this among with uh, along with uh, the the discrepancies in the uh, genealogies of Luke and and Matthew. So this is one of those reasons oh, that yeah. people have known about for a while. Yeah. And this this really irks. even C.S. Lewis C.S. is Lewis. saying like, hey, look, there's no way to explain this. Right, right. And apologists have known about this for a while, and a lot of them are going to just say that there's no real explicit contradiction here. 
Um, <laughs> I, I was waiting for this. <laughs> yeah. And so they're going to they're gonna try to harmonize it and say that, well, what could have happened is that, you know, something like Judas hung himself, but eventually his body rotted and he fell to the ground. So and both then happened. Then it burst open. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or well, the branch broke or something, right. and then he fell. I, and then I was going open. to say, it says he went to go hang himself, but it doesn't say he succeeded. Maybe on his way, he tripped and fell. Yeah, yeah. There yeah. you go. So he was carrying the rope, dragging yeah, it along exactly. behind him. <laughs> Yeah. So, do they offer any explanation? I, I've seen these excuses before. of how he his oh. body flips 180 oh. degrees, or or <laughs> yeah, because yeah, well, he yeah. got well, long. Yeah. There's there's yeah, that's that's or one. how how the how the writer would know that he fell headlong, right? Because well, if his body the writer exploded, only remembers, I only remember the explosion part, <laughs> not I mean, the fall. The, the, <laughs> <laughs> the, the hanging part was so irrelevant to the exploding part. That was what was so memorable. Yeah. And the other guy's like, I only remember the hanging part. The exploding <laughs> part wasn't all that important to me. God just wanted to show different perspectives. Right, right. Just the whole car crash thing, you know. This is, yes, I was going to say, not to be overly psychological, but we have this eyewitness discrepancy all the time in psychology with the car crashes and the different points of view. One person remembers a person being flung from the cabin. Right. Yeah. The other person only remembers a car crash. Yeah, and, and of course, like, if someone's coming to, someone comes to know about this story or whatever, whoever was there to witness the fact that his body was yeah has been Blew exploded up. all yeah. over the the field first of all how are you going to know that he fell headlong yeah for anyone to know that he fell headlong is they're going to have to know that how he fell they're going to have to they're going to have to know that he either we're talking rotted some from a tree. serious csi stuff right right yeah. i mean this is this isn't this can't be dealt with that easily i don't think this kind of apologetic craft work yeah. kind of stinks of a bit of desperation here. Mm-hmm. Um, cause, because we all know that if they found this same issue in another religious text, they would dismiss it. Oh, yeah. yeah. The next issue, who purchased the field? Now, remember in Matthew, uh, the priests, they refused to take the money. And then, you know, from the repentant Jesus, yeah. Yeah. or Judas. Judas says, <laughs> Judas says, oh, I screwed up. Take this money back. Right. I don't want anything to do. And they're like, deal with it yourself, man. And he just runs off and hangs himself. Yeah. Um, so in Matthew, they purchase, the, the priests purchase the field. Mm-hmm. And then Acts, of course, we're told that Judas is the one who acquires the field. Uh, now, the standard apologetic response can be found can be best found in apologeticspress.org in an article, Who Bought Potter's Field by Eric Lyons. Eric says, quote, I suppose if common sense and unbiased reasoning were omitted from this discussion, then one might conclude that these differences represent a legitimate contradiction. Oh, yeah. If one <laughs> yeah. Be- <laughs> yeah, clearly. If one, believes, sense. if one believes it is wrong to say that a father bought a car for his son, when in actuality the son purchased the car with the $5,000 that his father gave him, then I suppose that Acts one eighteen and Matthew 27 are contradictory. What? If one believes it is wrong to say that an employee purchased a meal, that an employer, sorry, yes. purchased a, a, a meal for their staff, when in actuality one of the employees actually handed the money to the waiter, then the events recorded in Acts 118 could be considered fictitious. 
but what reasonable person would reach such conclusions as these? And then he goes on to say, Only a Christ-hating uh, <laughs> <right>. atheist. <laughs> he goes on to say, Acts one eighteen simply informs us that Judas furnished the means for purchasing the field. One is not forced to conclude that Judas personally bought the field. So what he's saying is that the act of dropping the money right. in repentance and leaving the temple That's is Judas purchasing. Right, yeah. right. Now, of course, he wants to draw this analogy and say that, you know, that it's completely okay to say Judas purchased the field in this way. But I think there's some some important differences that need to be teased out from the way we use that kind of language. Mm-hmm. When a purchase is attributed to somebody, mm-hmm. it is because whatever was done with that sum of money was done so according to the wishes of the individual providing the funds. Right. For example, the father gave the 5000 to his son so that he may buy the car. So in a sense, the father intentionally began a chain of events that would lead in an indirect way to what he saw as the proper end, which was his son having a car. Right. Like, like I'd put money in bank accounts for each of my kids every month, and they can take it out when they're old enough to be responsible with money, so 30 or so. Right. If they then take that money and buy crack cocaine with it, <laughs> right. I didn't buy them crack cocaine. <laughs> Damn you, Dave. Hey, well, save, according, it for the, save it for the judge. Well, if you were a reasonable person using <laughs> common right. sense, Dave, An you unbiased would know reasoning, there's Dave. nothing wrong with saying you bought that crack cocaine. <laughs> All right. All right. I guess I'm wrong. <laughs> he was not giving it as a donation like, here, priests, go spend money. He right. was trying to purge himself of this sin. Yes. Right. So he was ignorant of the whereabouts of the money. And, of course, Judas dies before they purchase the field. Right. right. So... This, I mean, not even in an abstract way can it be said that he is a purchaser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not to mention that in most of the translations of the relevant Acts verse, the word is acquired or obtained. So it's it's an, it's showing that the purchaser is yeah. in possession of that good. Yeah, yeah, right, or that he is the beneficiary of it. When that's obviously not the, the case in the Judas, because Acts he's story definitely reads like Judas intentionally bought this plot of land. And and it doesn't say to kill himself on it, because quite frankly, why bother? Um, (laughs) It says, you know, it suggests that he bought this plot of land and then well, it has that irony, to, irony exactly. to it as well. Like this is what you purchased with that with that blood money. Right. This is where you're so going to die. die. So you completely ruin that kind of sense yeah. of irony. Or the, yeah, I mean, showing that he's purchasing this thing for his own gain, and then like a humiliating death. Right. You know, and it's a phenomenal coincidence that he died on the same field that was purchased with this money that he. Yeah, he spilt his blood on the on the land that bought yeah. with blood money. Right. Uh, and so the third issue here, of course, is... That was happy Judas whistling. That was my Monty Python account. Of, Just strolling uh, along my lovely new field. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, what is that? I pitched my foot upon a rock and I fell... <laughs> <laughs> and a little foot comes and stomps on all of it. Yeah, of course. Okay, so the third issue, of course, was, you know, 
the reason given for why Pottersfield now comes to be known, and that's important, I think, mm-hmm. comes to be known. It's a kind of an informal, conventional right. kind of this naming. It's like an etiology. Field. Why was this named? Right, Or at right. least it, it takes the form it? Yeah. that takes the form of an etiology. Everybody knows this plot of land. How did it get its name? Well, right. somebody really famous had did something to do with that. Judas. And so... Betrayer. <laughs> so, uh, if you remember in Matthew, uh, it explicitly says that the field comes to be known as the field of blood because it was purchased with the blood money yeah. from the priests. Yes. And then, of course, in Acts, uh, it's, it's the other way around. It's because Judas explodes Judas, on it. Yeah. Let me take a guess. They're going to say again, once again, no literal contradiction in the sense of a I honestly not a couldn't here. find much on this issue other yeah. oh, than really? someone asserting that these are two different fields. <laughs> what? I'm not kidding. Ah, the what? two different field defense. <laughs> <laughs> so this the, has gone too far afield. So the, o- the way to square yeah. this is that is to say, okay, well, um, the field that the uh, priests bought with blood money was a, was a field that came to be known in a in a kind of informal and conventional way as a particular thing. Yes. And then the, also this field over here, which was in very close proximity to the original, yes. uh, also becomes conventionally informally known as... Oh, as, great. And people just eventually forgot the difference, I'm sure. Right. And, you know, are you going to differentiate between field of blood A and field of blood B? <laughs> right. Might as well start calling them the same thing. That's, so that that's, was that's that's seriously the only defense I could find. Wow. I was like, really? That is the two fields defense. That's, that's how common sense, rational people think it, about exactly. it. <laughs> it's unbiased reasoning, man. Yep. But how does that jive with the the rest of the apologetic arguments for it? If we're talking oh, about two separate fields, that's now. the thing. Is that uh, if we're, if we're if we're trying to get all these together, I mean. I, the only response I'm finding are isolated responses dealing with specific issues, like th- of those three problems, right. they deal oh, with yeah. only one of the three. Oh, of course. I can't find someone giving me a comprehensive, complete, total treatment here. I think that these can be seen as 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 not just isolated uh, contradictions, but as in they can be seen as patterns, mm-hmm. as in the author's trying to portray Judas in, in differing ways. These differences in the text are, are systematic. Matthew seems to portray Judas in a much better light than Acts. Mm. Acts wants to portray him as as a as a kind of evil. He's the villain, being, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's merely greedy in Matthew. They say he approached the guys about getting the betrayal and the pieces of silver, whereas in the in Luke and Acts, he's or in Luke and John, Satan enters him. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. In fact, in fact, he approaches when it when you do when you look at the John thirteen passage, it says that Satan enters him as he take the bread from Jesus at the Last Supper, right. which is different than the um, than the version where Satan enters him to motivate him to approach the Jewish authorities. Well, Matthew is the mm-hmm. one where he's treated in in a better light here, because in in Matthew he's repentant. Yeah. In Matthew. He uh, is is trying to purge himself of the sin. Like, mm-hmm. first he repents, then he goes, these are separate acts, he repents, right. then he goes and tries to purge himself of the sin. And then when even when they say they won't take it, when he thinks that purging himself of the sin won't do any good for the, for the he still leaves. Because yeah. he wants to separate. That's his main goal. To go kill himself. Right. And then he goes and kills himself. And, and there's actually 
oh, shoot, I wish I had I'd brought this material, but there's some decent precedent in the Old Testament to show um, hanging oneself as a kind of repentance. And yeah, then of course you have in, in Acts, you have where uh, he's he's purchasing something for his own mm-hmm. self um, gain, much more snidely way. And then yeah, yeah, and then he you know he strolls onto his property and 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 has a humiliating death, yeah. and he's not at all repentant. And so these are very different portrayals. We, we, uh, Luke's comment that something that might have escaped some of our listeners is that the book of Luke and the book of Acts are written by the same author. So right, it's, it's right, relevant yes. to note when, when uh, our Luke, Dr. Professor Luke, brings up that the Gospel of Luke portrays as Satan entering in Judas uh, at, at the Last Supper. It's, right. it's relevant because that, yeah, yeah. that goes, That's the you same can see the connection well, with the theme in Acts. I think it's, it's, you know, there's been a whole debate throughout history about the free will aspect of this. If Jesus mm-hmm. predicts that Judas will betray him, mm-hmm. And and that it's necessary for him in order to bring it about, which mm-hmm. you know, uh, right. and and he does, and Satan enters him. How responsible? I mean, this is the psychologist thinking again. How responsible is Judas for these acts? I mean, I know that some people might say, well, saying Satan right. entered him is just one way of saying he was a wicked person or yeah. whatever like that. But it does bring up, like, well, let's say that Judas said, you know what, I'm not going to do it. Man, I don't want to betray Jesus. So would that have meant that none of this, the good things, right. the resurrection, would enter have ever the Gnostic Gospel? I was going to say Judas. that the Gospel of Judas deals with that idea yeah. and makes Judas sympathetic in that his role he is told, necessary. He was told by yeah. Jesus to do but, it. By Jesus, he's, yes, he's not by the Satan. one with the secret knowledge, right? Exactly. It's he like, knows uh, this has to happen. It's like last time when we talked about God talking to evil spirits exactly. and sending them out to do his, the, as day laborers. Well, Judas is just, you know, part of the mm-hmm. part of that scheme. He's just a cog in the machine. Right. One minor discrepancy, I guess, compared to all these major ones is who actually was considered a possible an apostle and a replacement for this. Mm-hmm. I was so I was waving oh, at you guys yeah. the uh the National Geographic issue on the apostles had basically lumped everyone together. But if you look at the different accounts of this, like for example in in Mark chapter three, they list the twelve they list the twelve apostles and include a guy named Thaddeus. Mm-hmm. Probably mm-hmm. not a major playoff, but they had Thaddeus and then you know Simon and the rest and Judas Iscariot. When you look at uh, Matthew, uh, you also find that there is Thaddeus listed there and Judas Iscariot there. But when you look at Acts and then Luke, which, as Jeremy just mentioned, is the same author, there's no Thaddeus, but then you see specifically a Judas, not Judas Iscariot. It says Judas, Hmm. the son of James. This is in um, Hmm. Acts chapter 1. It said uh, that there's Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James. And then you see in Luke chapter 6, it says there's, again, no Thaddeus. And it said Judas, the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So clearly, they're not confusing the name Judas here. They're differing as to And they're copy-pasting other people's lists and getting certain details wrong as well as what it... If people like want to there. do the whole, like, you know, uh, every jot and tittle there, which is it? Is Thaddeus in or out? And is Judas, the son of James, in or out? Is there, yeah, yeah is there two Judases? Is Thaddeus's middle name Judas? But he oh, went maybe, by Thaddeus most Maybe of you the just time? stumbled upon a great apologetic. Maybe, maybe both Judases. Hey, 
Maybe both Judas's betrayed. Oh, and they went one hung himself and one, one burst exploded. open. So there was really Holy 60 shit. pieces of silver because you could never buy a field <laughs> with only 30 pieces of That's silver. Right. I always That's thought right. that part was ridiculous. <laughs> oh, <laughs> use some common sense and it all makes sense. The Bible is this true. Sounds like a Hitchcock <laughs> That's the end of the show. Uh, it's a Hitchcockian body double thing. There was two Judases. <laughs> there were, they were twins just like in that movie The Prestige with Christian Bale and the one oh, such a good movie yeah, yeah. one died and the other day it was a twin oh, whole life they had been working up to that one trick now um, Judas's betrayal of course whoever Judas was led to his god being nailed to a tree let's turn now to a god with a hammer if you guys are aware of this um, because they haven't really marketed it very much but there's a small art film that came out recently <laughs> called The Avengers Ooh. that sounds pretty obscure and, and again I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of this but one of the characters in said film is actually based on the mythological character Thor oh. see what's his name um, it's actually Thor <laughs> oh. they, they call him okay. Thor yeah okay. yeah it's interesting um, as much as I love the movie, and I mean loved the movie, uh, I would make love to that movie. In that, point that, of is, fact. that is weird. I, I, had no, I had zero interest to see it until it's I so heard good. that Joss Whedon Joss Whedon, the director. And now I'm like, oh, grudgingly, like, writer, all right, I'll go see it. Writer and Write, director. Writer and and director. he is the absolute best component of that film. It's, it's brilliantly done. Anyway. So I thought this would be a good time to cut through all of the Hollywood uh, glitz and glamour of Thor and get to some of the real myths behind the hero. Of course, you all know he's the Norse god of lightning and the smasher of evildoers' skulls, but there's a lot more to him. For instance, did you know that Thor has a feminine side? Is this a Jungian anima and animus concept? <laughs> no. Um, you know, every male has a female. He also enjoys finger painting and long walks on the beach. Yes. <laughs> In one myth, Thor's hammer, Mjolnir, goes missing, and he goes to surprising lengths to get it back. He wakes up one morning, and it's gone, and he searches high and low, retraces his steps, even digs in the couch, but Mjolnir is nowhere to be found. Then he enlists the help of his sometimes companion, sometimes enemy, Loki who's also fantastic in the movie, by the way. Uh, Loki, with the help of the goddess Freya's magical feathered cloak, flew to Jotunheim, the land of the giants, and found the giant Thrym. Thrym confessed to have stolen the hammer and then buried it eight miles deep and was refusing to give it back until <laughs> Freya agreed to marry That's him. him. That's an intense where game. Where do they of, get the? Hold on. Where do they get the miles? Thing hide the when hammer. They go with that was. You'd be amazed, by the way, how often uh, Freya becomes a bargaining chip in Norse myths. Every troll and giant and whatever else wants to marry Freya, which is weird she, because she's, she's like actually the, a really terrible wife to her first husband. Loki returned to Asgard and filled the gods in on the news. Certainly they couldn't give into Thrym's demands and give him Freya as his bride. 
Or could they? Loki, ever the clever one, came up with a plan. A week later, Loki, disguised as a handmaiden, he's a shapeshifter, he can do that sort of thing, along with a surprisingly bulky Freya, decked out in a fine wedding gown and veil, rode up to Thrym's castle. The giant was delighted and offered his betrothed an enormous feast upon her arrival. Freya, quote-unquote, gobbled down the food, eating whole boars and tossing back mead like an Amish kid on Rumspringa (laughs) or Luke on a Tuesday night. And Wednesday. (laughs) And Thursday. And Friday. Thrym was disturbed and asked the handmaiden why Freya had such a voracious appetite. The handmaiden Loki explained that Freya had been so excited to get to Thrym that she hadn't been able to eat in days and was therefore famished. That little bit of flattery was good enough for Thrym to excuse Freya's poor table manners. Then he started to get a little antsy and Thrym asked if he could see Freya's face. Loki said, no, absolutely not. It's bad luck and all that stuff. But Thrym could not be deterred, so Loki agreed to let him have a little peek. So he peeled back the veil just enough to see a pair of bloodshot eyes burning with the hatred of a thousand Star Wars fans after someone has said to them, live long and prosper, Luke. What? Come on. (laughs) Star Wars and Star Trek. (laughs) Exactly. They don't like that. Uh, WTF, said Thrym or something to that effect. Oh, see, Loki explained, she hasn't slept for days. All she can think about is the wedding night. She's so excited she just can't sleep. And, of course, that prospect excited Thrym. So he quickly called everyone together in order to begin the wedding ceremony. First and foremost, though, he presented Freya with his wedding gift, Thor's hammer, Molnir. His servants placed it in the lap of the bride, who quickly snatched it up, tore off her veil to reveal that, surprise, surprise, it was actually Thor all along. Punked. <laughs> yes. It's Ashton like, Kutcher in the film crew. And uh, Betty White runs in with some old people. Have you seen that show where Betty White and old people punk people? No. Yeah, it's a real thing. What? It's uh, um, society is dead. Anyway, um, Thrym uh, couldn't even pick his jaw up off the floor before Thor hammered his brains to the walls. Because that's what Thor does. He smashes heads. Literally, that's almost how every story about Thor ends. He flies in and smashes someone's skull. He doesn't try to use his words. doesn't try to solve no, conflicts. It's like, a- I hit it with a hammer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, at least what pa- Captain America gives you a patriotic lesson and then has a shield. He doesn't yeah. like cut your head off with it. No, no. Thor, Thor just smashes. He, he was smashing before the Hulk was even born. Uh, so, yes, he's a hero a fierce warrior and someone you definitely don't want to mess with, but he's also not above dressing like a lady to get a job done. There are plenty more brain-smashing adventures of Thor as well, of course, but we'll get to those some other time. In the meantime, there you have it. Thor, Norse god of thunder, Avenger, and cross-dresser. And just one more god worth not believing in. And now... Let's end with a quick Stranger Than Fiction. (laughs) 
Religion riskier than porn for computer viruses. Enough said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, this article comes from uh, thetimeslive.co.za. I'm not even sure what country that is. Yes. Um, Namibia? Web wanderers are more likely to get a computer virus by visiting a religious website than by peering at porn, according to a study. Drive-by attacks in which hackers booby-trap legitimate websites continue to be a bane. The U.S.-based antivirus vendor um, Symantec said in its Internet Security Threat Report, um, apparently there is a larger threat by visiting religious websites than pornographic websites. I think part of the explanation was that um, a lot of pornographers – Want to make money off of ads? Exactly. <laughs> they, exactly. They don't. They don't. Uh, uh, they don't. They want people coming to their site, and not fleeing because of uh, all this. Whereas uh, uh, apparently, the idea is that some of these religious blogs, there's not the same kind of. They never explained why religious bloggers would be more eager to bloat you up with malware and viruses and stuff. Yeah. But uh, mm. apparently, there's not the uh, the same amount of income coming from a lot of these religious well, that, websites. That would certainly make sense. But uh, so next time your wife or mom or husband or whomever catches you surfing porn, just say, "Look, I'm trying to avoid getting computer viruses." Yeah, I wanted to go to the safest place. This is the safest thing I can do. To avoid getting I'm trying really hard to think of a of a great joke, but I'm I'm dead. And when I actually there's a there's a real real joke that goes along with this. Uh, a friend of mine, his child, he he walked in on his his teenage boy uh, in the computer room, and he and his boy like suddenly minimized the screen real quick right. so that dad wouldn't see what was all on been there. there. And he waited patiently for his boy to get up and leave so he could go and check the check the search oh, history no. and see what he was doing. Went and found the kid had been on a Christian chat site. <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't want his atheist father to see it. I w- minimized it real quick. Oh, now, that's, that's now, with adorable. This study, now with this study, we could actually say one response could have been to be like, why don't you surf on more safe places like <laughs> pornography websites? Start messing with this religious stuff. You're going to get our computer. Well, back. the one commonality there is that the average person would probably also be able to read only about four minutes of a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Or they're just like, ah, I'm done. (laughs) And I'm spent. That is absolutely where we have to end it this time. Um, What a great finish. Well, Well played. So... And once again, I just want to end by reminding you all that you can contact us at gmail, um, doubtcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at doubtcast, uh, fan us on Facebook. And, of course, you can go to YouTube, youtube.com slash doubtcast. All right. Where Justin is busily putting up uh, all sorts of videos. If you have suggestions for segments from the show you'd like to um, have on YouTube so that you can easily share them with friends, let us know. And um, we'll make Justin do it because the rest of us don't know how to. But uh, until next time, thanks for listening. um, And we'll be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. 
To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. 